I will just say, when I came here uh, almost nine years ago now, uh, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Like, I'd never been a lead pastor. Uh, I just didn't have a clue what I was doing. And eight years later, in that final year, there were so many areas where I still said, I still don't have a clue what I'm doing. Hopefully, the, the one thing that became clear for me over that time was my task, my understanding of what my task was became more and more crystallized the longer I was uh, in this role. And so my prayer, and this, you'll see this reflected in the text that I'm going to preach this morning, my prayer is that as you call your next pastor, you would know that you're calling someone to be faithful as a gospel minister to point you toward Christ, to open up God's word, to preach God's word faithfully, to live and and model what he preaches. But you're not calling someone to solve all your problems. You're not calling someone who has it all figured out. You're not calling an expert. You're calling someone who will simply point you to the chief shepherd, point you to the one who, who all along has been the chief shepherd of Lake Morton Community Church. Um, And so my prayer is that... is that the Lord will lead you and a candidate together to say, that's what we want to do together. We want to lift up Jesus. We want to worship Jesus. We want to reach others with the gospel. We want to be faithful. And um, I know that in the Lord's timing, that will happen. So that leads me to the text. I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Any of you who've been around here for a really long time and have a really good memory might know that this is actually the very first text I preached from this pulpit. So this was the text I preached for my candidating sermon. Uh, and the reason I preached this text, Ed, Ed told me, he's like, I know you're going to pick the right text for this moment in the life of our church. No pressure. Um, and, uh, and as I was mulling it over, I was thinking, what's the right text for this season? Um, and I, kind of, I kept coming back to this because I'm having to revisit this text for my own sake. What's my role now as I'm counseling others? And as you get ready to call your next pastor, what is the role of that pastor? And what is your role as you, um, as you seek to live faithfully as followers of Jesus? I think John the Baptist models that well for us here. So if you would stand with me as we read John chapter 3. Verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because the water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, what we want is that Jesus, his name, his glory, his beauty would increase, would be seen, would be adored and worshipped in this world. And that we would decrease. That our overinflated sense of ego and our need to be needed so often and our need to feel like we have things figured out would decrease. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who rejoice in not being the Savior, but in those who have the great and wonderful privilege of pointing to the Savior. Lord, would you use your word in this way, in our hearts, in our lives today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I, when I, after I finished college, actually before I finished college, I ended up being the groomsman in quite a few weddings. And then a lot of those guys ended up being groomsmen in my wedding. And the first of those weddings was my friend Thad Penny. He was the first of us to get married. And he was, uh, his wife-to-be was uh, from the D.C. suburbs. And they had started attending a very kind of high church Episcopal church. That's where they were going to be married. And uh, so there was a lot of expectation on what this ceremony needed to look like, and things needed to be done in a certain way. In the Episcopal tradition, um, you don't kind of tell them what your wedding is going to be. They say, here's what we do, and here's what, it's, here's, here's what will be proclaimed in your wedding ceremony, and here's the role that each person plays. And so uh, as I was preparing to be one of the grooms of my friend Thad, he did not grow up in that tradition. He was very nervous about how all this was going to go. Uh, He was very much concerned that things be just right um, for the sake of all the family and just the the expectations were high. And so my buddies and I decided we're going to play a little joke on him. So the morning of the wedding, he comes to check on us in our hotel rooms and we're all dressed in our tuxes and all the guys except for me have on their nice dress shoes that came with the tuxes. I have on my tux, but I'm wearing my Nike running shoes. And as he comes, we say, Thad, we need to talk to you. Um, Something happened with um, with the company that handles the tuxes. For whatever reason, my shoes didn't show up. And, you know, we came here with only only wearing our normal clothes. So these are the only other shoes I have. Uh, We've checked around. There's no other place available. And, uh, but but all of us were like, hey, listen, it's going to be okay. No one will really notice. He's like, what do you mean no one will notice? You're wearing white tennis shoes with a black tux. Of course, everyone's going to notice. And we're like, well, it's, yeah, but it's not that big of a deal. Like, I'm not the best man. Uh, Most people are going to be focused on you. And he was like, I can't believe this. And he, he just goes into near meltdown status until finally we decided to say, okay, actually the shoes did show up and we're just pulling your leg and everything's going to be fine. Calm down. And so uh, 
we, we knew that's a joke you can do for five or ten minutes, but you, you don't actually do that in the service, right? It, it, it's one thing to kind of pull his leg. It's another thing to actually show up with those tennis shoes on as uh, a gotcha, as a joke. Because every groomsman understands that he is not at the wedding to draw attention to himself. Every bridesmaid understands that she's not at the wedding to draw attention to herself. They are there for the bride and the groom. A wedding is one of the few places in our culture where you still see a large group of people who come together for a common purpose, and that common purpose is not to draw attention to themselves or to self-actualize or to, to make it a moment that is about me. A wedding is one of those places where there's still a common social understanding. This is about others. The focus, the spotlight needs to be on others. And that's why John the Baptist uses this image to explain his role. Explaining the purpose of his ministry in relation to Jesus, he uses an analogy that still connects us with us today, I think, as powerfully as it did in the first century. We all understand where the focus should be at a wedding. We instinctively know that this is not the place to be the center of attention. And we rejoice that the attention is given to the bride and the groom. We celebrate that. But weddings are the outlier, aren't they? It's not instinctive to us to be happily overshadowed in general. Even those of us who are more quiet in public settings still like to receive credit where credit is due. All of us have areas of life where we can start to take on a Messiah complex. This is why John the Baptist's testimony is so important for us to get. It touches a nerve with each one of us. It exposes a very real problem that's woven into our fallen nature. But his testimony also points us to the one who can remedy that problem. So let's look together at this text. There, there are three things I want to primarily focus on this morning. And the first is being overshadowed reveals our hearts. Being overshadowed reveals our hearts. So it's important to understand the context behind this scene. We're told in verse 22 that Jesus was baptizing in the Judean countryside. We learn in chapter 4 that it was actually his disciples who were baptizing in the name of Jesus. And John is also baptizing in Anon near Salim. So there's a period here in the early ministry of Jesus and the ministry, ministry of John the Baptist in which they're overlapping. All right, John is preaching a message of kingdom anticipation, and he's baptizing followers at the very same time that Jesus is preaching a message of kingdom fulfillment and baptizing followers. And these two are happening side by side. All throughout the Bible, we see a tension between the already and not yet of God's kingdom purposes. In, in this period where we see the overlap of the end of John the Baptist's ministry and the beginning of Jesus' ministry is one of those places where we feel a very real tension between the already and not yet of God's redemptive plan. We feel this tension because it's apparent that Jesus' ministry is growing in significance. And the ministry of John the Baptist is diminishing in significance. John's was a short-term mission. A mission 
a ministry of preparation designed to highlight the life and ministry of Jesus. John understood this, and and it's been clear to him from day one. Look back at chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. What a, what a simple but profound statement. I am not the Christ. I am not the one you need. What a better world this would be if public leaders were quick to say, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I am not the one who's going to fix everything for you. Could you imagine what our next election cycle would be like if, if that's the way our leaders or candidates for public office spoke? If they said, you know what, <clears throat> I've got some ideas that I think are helpful, that are good, I think uh, they can improve some things, but if, if we're being honest here, I'm not going to fix it all. I mean, you all can read history, right? Like, we know a lot of presidents have come before me. They didn't fix everything. I'm not going to do it either. Um, we're going to hopefully have some gains. They're not going to, you're not going to get everything you want. By the way, government can't fix all the problems in your life to begin with, and you can still have a happy life even if all the policy decisions don't go your way. And while I'm at it, I might as well mention, you know, I've, my opponent and I have some genuine disagreements over some really important issues, and he probably has some decent ideas that you should listen to as well. Like, nobody talks that way. We have, we have created a culture in which leaders thrive on kind of the Messiah complex. I will fix it. I will make things better. I will give you the life you're looking for. John's role is to fulfill the words of Isaiah 40, verse 3, as one who prepares the way for the Lord. Jesus himself acknowledged in Matthew 11 that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come who Malachi said would precede the Messiah. And John understood his role clearly, but his disciples struggled to get it. Turning back to John 3, let's look now at verses 25 and 26. Now a discussion rose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John John, and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So we don't know much about this debate that happens between John's disciples and this Jew. Over, we know it's over purification. But for whatever reason, this debate seems to, to spark something in them where suddenly they are bothered by the many people they see going to Jesus. Because many of the people who are going to Jesus are people who once were following John, people who they had baptized, people who they had the opportunity to instruct or to just fellowship with. And now they're going to Jesus. So his disciples are thinking, what's going on here? Jesus is stealing our show. It appears that at least some of John's disciples were excited about the opportunity to be part of something big, but they didn't understand that by God's own design, Jesus's ministry was supposed to overshadow John's. 
and their hearts were revealed in this. This is a challenge for all of us, right? All of us want to be wanted. All of us like to be needed by others. If you care about helping others, you will face this temptation. The temptation to, to hold out yourself as the answer, to try to be the Savior rather than point to the Savior, to seek glory rather than to give glory. This temptation is no respecter of persons. It doesn't have to be the, the self-aggrandizing politician. It could be the, the CEO who thinks she must micromanage everything or the parent who feels that he needs to solve every dilemma for his child. And yes, it plagues pastors as well who love to be needed, who love to be looked to for, for wisdom and for help and are tempted to build a platform for themselves. None of us like to be overshadowed. And all of this reveals something about our hearts. It reveals the fact that deep down within us, there is something very self-absorbed in each one of us. And it reveals something about our culture because we live in a culture that, that fosters that kind of self-absorbed thinking about life. Right? I must decrease feels like the most counterintuitive thing ever in the world in which we live. But take culture out of it for a moment. I must decrease feels like the most counterintuitive thing ever if you know your own heart. So how do we break free from this? We can only break free through a radical humility, a, humi a humility we see modeled in John the Baptist, a humility that ultimately is modeled in Jesus himself and comes through the grace of Jesus. And that brings us to our second point. Being overshadowed requires radical humility. So look with me now at verses 27 through 30. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John acknowledges three things in these verses that fuel his radical humility. And the first is this. First, he acknowledges that his ministry of preparation is not something that he initiated or created. It was given to him. But he doesn't just make this as a statement about himself. He makes a general statement about all people here. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That's the ultimate leveler, isn't it? Right? If, if we say, everything I have, every accomplishment, every good thing in my life has ultimately come to me as a gift of God's grace. There's nothing I created myself there's nothing I've accomplished apart from his enabling power. There's nothing I have that didn't come from him. When we're able to see that and believe it, it removes all grounds of boasting. Paul reasons this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 4, or 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. 
where he explains why acknowledging this is essential to true humility. Starting in the middle of verse 7, he says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, what can you claim to have that you generated apart from God? This is why John is able to say, this ministry is not mine to lay down or to take up. It's ultimately God's, and he can do with it as he pleases. So that's the first acknowledgement, that this is not something that John created. This was not his initiative. This was not his brainchild. It was given to him by the Lord. Secondly, John again reminds his disciples that he is not the Christ, but was sent before him. In other words, John was meant to fade from the scene all along. He was setting the stage for the true hero of redemptive history. And once the hero enters the stage, John knows that his role is to quietly fade away, to exit stage left, and to rejoice that Christ is lifted up. Charles Spurgeon once said, humility is to make a right estimation of oneself. Which means not just knowing yourself, but knowing yourself in light of who God is. Knowing yourself in light of his grace and mercy. Every ministry, every leadership role, every station in life is a brief and temporary station that is meant to point to the eternal Savior. Thirdly, John uses the analogy of a bridegroom and the bridegroom's friend. He says, the bridegroom lays down his life for the bride, not the best man. He's saying, I did not come to be the hope of the world. I did not come to be the Savior. I did not come to purchase salvation. I did not come to redeem lost men and women and children from the clutches of sin. Only the bridegroom can do that. And therefore, what is more essential than anything is that people see the bridegroom and not me. If John were to build an impressive ministry for himself, he's actually stealing the hope that people need because the one they need to see is Christ. Remember John's response back in John 1 when he saw Jesus walking toward him? He immediately puts the spotlight on Jesus as the Savior, calling out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I've been telling you about. This is the Savior. And that theme marks John's ministry from this point forward. These three acknowledgments fuel his ability to not only accept being overshadowed, but to actually rejoice in being overshadowed, to give thanks. Look at the end of verse 29 again. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. People are turning away from him. His ministry is and influence are diminishing, and he could not be happier. His joy is completed in this. Essentially, John is saying, I can, I can now die a happy man now that I've seen Jesus' influence and his ministry grow to its rightful place. And indeed, not long after, he does. Not long after, John's head is on a platter in front of Herodias because Herod in his foolishness, made a promise to a dancing girl. John Piper refers to the life of John the Baptist as a joyful tragedy. He went from being the new Elijah, a powerful prophet, to then, 
an overshadowed prophet, to eventually a neglected prophet, to then an imprisoned and forgotten prophet, and eventually a beheaded prophet. Not how most of us would envision a successful ministry. And yet, John faithfully carried out the mission that was given to him to lift up Jesus, to point to, to prepare the way for the Savior of the world. This is why John proclaims in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. This isn't just a statement of humility. It's not just I want this to happen or wouldn't it be nice. This is a statement of what must happen. John is saying that this is the way that it has to be because God's plan for redemptive history had prepared it this way all along. All along, it required that John the Baptist exit stage left while Jesus becomes the focal point. It's time for the best man to step aside so that there's no question who the bridegroom is. So why is it important that we see this? It's important because the message of Scripture is so clear all the way through that only the bridegroom can lay down his life for the bride. See, even as John the Baptist is shining a spotlight on Jesus as the bridegroom, Jesus at that very moment is looking down the aisle at his bride. Jesus at that moment is preparing the way to lay down his life in his own ultimate act of humility to give himself for us. Everything he does in his life, death, and resurrection is for her, that she may be a spotless and radiant bride. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And we see it in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. Describing the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. John knows that only Jesus can come and lay down his life for and redeem a bride for himself, a bride made clean and pure by his own blood. And therefore, as we proclaim Christ to the world, they need for us to be witnesses who are not just willing, but happy to be overshadowed, joyful at being overshadowed by the one we proclaim. And so that brings us to our third point this morning. The world needs us to be overshadowed. If you look down at verse 36, you see why this is so important that our world see Jesus clearly. Notice John tells us here, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is no small matter. This is not theology in the abstract. Heaven and hell are hanging in the balance. People desperately need to see Jesus. To know Jesus. There's a gospel that lifts up this Savior and it calls for a response. 
Therefore, it's crucial that we are ambassadors who shine the spotlight clearly on Jesus. We must know and understand and articulate who Jesus is, why he came, what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. We must help people understand that Jesus is not a life coach who's come to help us better ourselves, but rather he's a savior who rescues us from our helpless and sinful state. There are so many false gospels proclaiming a Jesus who is something other than this. And the thing that makes them dangerous is not that they are wholly untrue. The thing that makes them dangerous is that they actually contain elements of truth. Enough truth to make them attractive. Enough truth to to say, yeah, there's something to that. But what happens is that in honing in on a secondary truth and magnifying that to a place of ultimate importance, these false gospels overshadow the ultimate aim of why Jesus came. There's so many. Just to mention a few, there's the the gospel of the therapeutic Jesus. Again, the element of truth here is that Jesus, he provides peace and safety healing for those who are hurting. He cares about us in the midst of our trauma and our pain. He draws near to the brokenhearted. But his ultimate aim is not to make us feel better about ourselves, but to save us from the damning effects of sin. Or there's the partisan Jesus Again, the element of truth here is that Jesus cares deeply about justice and human flourishing and righteousness in the world. But he did not come to endorse a party or a candidate. He is the only one whose platform, whose agenda is always and only righteous and always and only aimed at our good. Or there's the prosperity Jesus. Again, the truth here is that Jesus promises to provide for us. But the same Jesus also promises that we will walk through tribulation. He promises that we'll experience suffering and endure hardship. And he promises that he'll be faithful to us in the midst of that. But ultimate prosperity is promised not for this life, but for the life to come. All of these have one thing in common that sets them in bold contrast to the message of John the Baptist. Where John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease, false gospels always in in one form or another say, Jesus must help me increase. That's why Jesus came. He came to help me increase. He came to help my agenda increase. The world needs ambassadors for the gospel who are willing and happy to be overshadowed, who are willing to decrease so that Christ may increase and be clearly seen and cherished and believed. Paul captures this attitude so well in these verses we read earlier in the call to worship. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31, showing us why God normally chooses weak and ordinary people to do the work of his kingdom. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So friend, brother, sister, where's your boasting? Where's your boasting? The world has seen enough of Christians who are co-opting Jesus for their agenda. They desperately need Christians who are willing to shine the spotlight clearly and unmistakably on Jesus so that his saving work can be seen and embraced. This means laying aside our own agendas, deflecting attention away from ourselves for the sake of the clarity of the gospel. So as we close, I want to flesh out just a few points of application. There there are a few places where I want to tie the example of John the Baptist to real leadership context. And the first, I'll just say, to churches and pastors. To churches and pastors. So some of this is reflective as I look back, and some of this is looking forward, saying, what what does this mean for us? I think it means that a, a church's calling is not to try to be something extraordinary in and of itself, but to say, we proclaim an extraordinary Savior. We want the attraction to be the gospel because what we win them with is what we win them to. It also, I think, helps, it helps a church realistically frame what the role and calling of a pastor is. A pastor's calling is not to build a church around his personality or his leadership style or his gifts and abilities. Nor can a church place its hope for growth on the shoulders of its next pastor. Right? Churches that grow will be churches where every member says, I'm a disciple maker. I'm, I'm called to faithfully proclaim this message. I'm called to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the, in the places where God has put me. But also I think it's a way to care for a pastor, to take that pressure off of his shoulders, because that, what that pressure does is it tempts a pastor to either pride or despondency. Right? So when things are going well, there's a temptation for pride. Like, wow, getting some things done here. This is good. But when things are not going well, there's a temptation toward despondency. It's a temptation to feel like a complete failure. So no, a pastor is not called to be the hope for a church's growth. A pastor is called, rather, to shine a spotlight on Jesus as the true shepherd, the true king and head of the church. LMCC has had many pastors over its years, but it's only ever had one true shepherd. That never changes. And so, while I think it's, it is appropriate and right, just to clarify, it is appropriate and right to think about gifts and calling and fit and all of that. There should be nothing you seek in your next pastor more than this. Is he shining the spotlight on Jesus? Is he faithful to proclaim 
the words of Jesus? Is he faithful to help others know Jesus and grow in him? So to kind of get, take it a next step down is elders, church leaders in general. Which I think the application here is this. The way to shepherd others is to publicly put on display your utter dependence on Jesus. And I say this to a group of elders who I know I can say, you're, you're doing this because I've seen it. But it's a reminder I think we always need to publicly put on display our utter dependence on Jesus. If there is, well, let me just say, there are regrets as I look back in the last eight years, think, I wish I had done this better, I wish I had done this better. If one of those regrets is, is wishing I had more often made public the, those places where I felt like, I just don't have a clue. I really don't have this figured out. And, and this is an opportunity to invite the church to pray together as we seek the Lord's wisdom and direction. That pressure to feel like you're a leader who kind of knows the next step and where to go often tempts you to say, I don't want to put that out there. I don't want to make that public. But there's a great opportunity for elders, for pastors, for church leaders in general to say, it's okay to not know what's next, and it's okay to put that out there and invite the body of Christ to pray together that God would provide wisdom. Lastly, I'll, I'll just address parents because I know in my own life as a parent and I, I talk to so many parents who struggle with this is just recognizing that perhaps the greatest thing we can do for our children is to continue to be honest about, about our ongoing need of a Savior. To confess our sins in front of them. Right? Trusting Jesus is so counterintuitive as it is that we, we don't help our children, I think, when we put on a facade of super spirituality, as though we don't have the same needs that they do. And this is true, by the way, whether your children are three or 43. Right, like, we are all in need of God's grace. We all are in need of his provision. And I think in seeing that, children are are drawn to a Savior who welcomes them to come in their neediness. Colossians 3 captures so well what should define our lives as Christians. Which, by the way, is in counseling, Colossians 3 is, if I were to go back and count, is probably the text that I go to more than any other. And also, I think it would make Andrew kind of happy to know that I at least included one Colossians reference in this sermon. Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4 say, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When we understand and embrace this new identity, we rejoice at being overshadowed by Jesus. Because we realize, as Jesus is magnified, it actually doesn't diminish me. It actually fulfills me. As Jesus is lifted up, the more he shines through my life, the more I become my true self. The more I become who God intended me to be. The more fulfilled I am. The more happy I am. 
As he increases and we decrease, we become more whole, more human, and we fulfill more of God's purpose for us. And when we understand that, then we're able to say, it's not just that I am willing to be overshadowed by Jesus, but my joy is made complete as his grace and glory shines. And then we delight to say, may he increase, may I decrease, may his name be praised forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Jesus we lift up, the one who is all glorious and magnificent, the one who will one day return in power, is also the Jesus who is gentle and lowly, who draws near to us, who models for us what humility looks like. So as we lift up his name, may we also learn from his gentle and lowly heart. May we be happy to see his glory increase. And may may we be more fulfilled and satisfied in him as that happens. Lord, again, I thank you for these brothers and sisters and thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to share not only in your word, but to share in your word made visible through the Lord's Supper. So Lord, would you prepare our hearts to again lift up Christ, to rejoice in him, to feast on him as we take this meal together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.